Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the flood. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock good morning church i was going to start today by complaining about the rain and then mike made me feel guilty for that so thank you and then Ron came up here, and, and Ron made me very hungry, and now all I can think about is where am I going to find Portuguese food in Rochester Hills, so now I have to watch my time and make sure I don't go over so you don't hear my stomach start grumbling. But today what I want to start with for you um, is a purely hypothetical question. Purely hypothetical, right? Let's not let it cross the line into being anything more than that. But let's just say, put yourself in the mindset where you are, I don't know, let's just say you're the son of God. And let's just say that you've left heaven. You've come to earth and you're going to live as a man. And, and you know that while you're here, you are here on mission, right? This isn't vacation. This isn't spring break in Jerusalem. There are messages that need to be delivered. And you know that you only have a very short period of time that you're actually going to be able to deliver these messages. And where you are in your mission at this point is the, the, the basis and the groundwork of your mission has been laid. At your baptism, the, the sky has parted, right? The Spirit has descended upon you. Uh, the, the voice of God speaks. He calls you His Son. You've already begun this process where you've called disciples, uh, followers who are going to learn from you and who will take your message to the end of the earth. You've even performed miracles. People have witnessed that, that you've healed the sick, that you've cast out demons, and because of all of this, your name is now starting to become known. Your presence, wherever you go, it causes waves. People are curious. People want to hear from you. They want to hear about you. Wherever you go, crowds are following you. And deep down, what they want to know is they want to know if what they have heard about you can possibly be true. And as they wonder, of course, you're divine, so you know their thoughts. Even if they won't say them out loud, you know what their curiosity is. They wonder, could this be him? Could this be the one that we have waited for? Could this be the Messiah? This is the situation that we find Jesus in as the fourth chapter of Matthew's gospel comes to a close. I want to read for you these last couple verses of Matthew 4 as they're going to be an introduction into the Sermon on the Mount that we are going to be studying over the next six weeks. So starting in verses 23, uh, 23 through 25 of the fourth chapter of Matthew, it says, And he, he being Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 
So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This thought continues then into verse 1 of chapter 5. Verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This picture that is set up for us, the stage that is set, is that people have quite literally, they have come from all over. We're told that Jesus is teaching in Galilee, but people have come to hear him teach from all over. They've come from the Decapolis. They've come from Jerusalem. They've come from Judea. Some have even come further. And we think about as these people have traveled to hear Jesus, perhaps some of them, perhaps they had a donkey to travel upon, so they did not have to walk the whole thing. Or they didn't have to hoof it. I guess that would be the dad joke to make there. Donkey, hoof. Maybe some of them were able to cross the sea. Maybe they had access to a boat, so they did not have to walk the entire distance. But I want you to understand the type of journey that we're talking about that these people went on so that they would have the chance to hear this teacher. For example, if you were in Judea and you wanted to go see this teacher in Galilee, you were packing for quite a trip. Depending on exactly where it was you departed from and, and exactly where the teacher that you sought was going to be, which also remember, no social media check-ins back in the day. You headed out on the road and you hoped that when you arrived at your destination that the teacher would still be there. But this walk that you would have been preparing for, it was 24 hours of straight walking. In real world terms, three or four or five days. Some of you are thinking, for me, it would have been even more than that. And again, when, when you arrived at your destination, you did not even know if the teacher you were looking for would still be in town. And as chapter 5 begins, these are the, the, the tired masses, the crowds that Jesus sees coming. So he steps back onto this mountainside, onto this hillside, so that he could be elevated. And then he begins to teach. The question is, if you put yourself back into his sandals... What is it that you would have been preparing to teach upon? It's the question I asked myself. You know, seriously, if, if you had what would probably be one shot with many of these people, maybe there's a few hundred, maybe there's a few thousand. Most of them, it will be the only time in their lives that you will ever have the opportunity to speak with them face to face. So this is my one shot. I don't want to blow it. Anything that I want these people to know this is my opportunity. Whatever they need to know so that they can continue and go out and carry on the mission that I'm going to send them on, this is my one amazing opportunity. The people have come from all over. Whatever it is that I say to them, this is what they're going to carry back with them to their villages and to their towns. I'm aware that whatever it is I say to these people... It's going to go back with them. It is going to become the groundwork. It will go before me and reach an even greater amount of people than what stands in front of me presently. So if it was me, and I don't know about you, but if it was me, what I would have been tempted to do in that moment is pull a Tony Stark. 
Do you guys know who Tony Stark is? I know sometimes my, co okay, some of you do. Tony Stark, if you've ever seen Iron Man number one, the movie that started the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, Tony Stark finds himself, he's a billionaire, mind you, you know, but Tony Stark finds himself at a press conference at the end of the movie. After people have seen and witnessed this, this amazing metallic flying man with rockets in his hands and boosters in his feet, and everyone wants to know if Tony Stark has anything to do with this incredible feat. Now, Tony knows what he's supposed to say. Tony knows he's supposed to bashfully, bashfully deny his true identity, just like every superhero who has come before him. Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne and Peter Parker, they all would say, oh, shucks, no, of course that's not me. I'm just not the superhero type. But not Tony. A reporter stands up and asks him, Tony, are you Iron Man? And Tony, he grips the podium in front of him. He looks straight into the camera and he says, I am Iron Man. Music starts and the movie ends. Again, if I was in Jesus' shoes, this is what I would have been tempted to do. I would have been tempted to look out over this great crowd, this crowd who it says has witnessed me already cast out demons, who has already seen me heal the sick, and, and when someone would shout out, Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? As just a man, I would have been tempted to give what would be an honest and logically an answer that would make a whole lot of sense. I'd be tempted to look out over that crowd and say, yes, I am. Yes, I am the one that you have been waiting for. Yes, anyone who would like to come to the Father, you're going to have to come through me. And I would drop the microphone proverbially because I don't think they had microphones back then. And I would head home and I would send the people back to their towns and their villages to say, guess what? I've met the Messiah. But if you've ever read the fifth and sixth and seventh chapters of the, of the Gospel of Matthew you know that this is not what happened that day. These people who had traveled a great distance to come and hear teaching. And what Jesus did is instead of having that Tony Stark moment, what Jesus did is he delivered what is possibly the greatest, the most famous sermon that has ever been spoken. The greatest sermon that had ever been spoken, and depending on what you believe, it may have only lasted 10 or 15 minutes. And some of you are thinking right now, Daniel, you've already spoke for 10 or 15 minutes. Right? There are some people that think that what we see recorded in the 5th and 6th and 7th chapters of Matthew's Gospel, that they're just the highlights of, of, of a greater teaching. And perhaps they are. I don't know that. But I know if we look at the, the other account that we have in the Gospel of Luke of this same teaching, it's actually shorter than what we see in Matthew. And I know that what we see in Matthew, it certainly does have a very complete feel to it. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. I also know that some people will say that, that this is a sermon that Jesus toiled over in preparation for. And perhaps he did. I know that's what I would have done. Right? I know if it was me and I had this one amazing opportunity, I know I would have written my words down. I would have rewritten them again. I would have lost sleep and obsessed about every, every pronunciation of every word that I was going to say. And again, maybe he did that. But what I think actually what we're witnessing here in these three chapters is we are going to hear teachings from Jesus that he had intended to, to deliver to his disciples in a more private setting. It's the same teachings that he was going to give to those closest to him 
but now they're communicated just on a much larger stage or a much larger hillside. Point being is we can make assumptions, but it doesn't really help us. We, we stay away from imagining or assuming how this all went down. What we worry about are the actual teachings of Jesus, the actual words that he spoke in this sermon. We try not to put ourselves in this position and say, you know, if it was me, I would have laid out the entire plan for salvation for these people. Because what's more important than that? I want them to understand. I want them to be saved. So again, for me, I would have seized this opportunity. I would have revealed as much as I possibly could about the mystery of resurrection, about salvation through faith. But when we read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not do that. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, yes, Jesus talks about the kingdom. There are absolutely allusions to eternal life. But, but throughout this sermon, this opportunity that he had, Jesus refers to himself as the Messiah zero times. There, there, there is but one allusion to him being God's son. There is but one allusion of, of him being the standard bearer of the entrance to heaven. Right, his fulfill, fulfillment of the messianic prophecy, right, preparing people for his death and his resurrection, they were not the focal point of this message that was delivered to this crowd of weary travelers. But his words were still of the utmost importance. I know that what Jesus spoke in this sermon was of the utmost importance to us because Jesus himself, he makes it very clear as, as his sermon comes to an end, in the seventh chapter of Matthew, in verses 24 through 27, you've already heard these words once this morning, but now we're going to read them directly from Scripture. It says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus tells us himself that the hearing, and not just the hearing, but the actual application of his teachings were going to be essential if we would build a life upon a firm foundation. We know Jesus as Messiah. We know Jesus as the Savior of the world. And he definitely, most definitely, he is those things. He was those things. He is those things. And he will always be those things. But it's not the focus of these instructions that we are told to build upon. It's interesting. Ethics seems to be the focal point. Jesus wants us to know how to live, how to act. As I read these three chapters, this seems to be the focal point of this sermon that we all hail as being so great. If I sat down and I made an outline of this entire sermon, it would just be chalked full with ethical instructions. If you have your Bibles in front of you and you flip through chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and you look at the topics, you look at the subheadings, 
Right? Look at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes telling us who it is and how those who want blessings will act. You look, there's teachings here telling us how to deal with anger, how to deal with lust. There's teachings in this sermon about how a Christian should approach divorce, the swearing of oaths, right? revenge and dealing with our enemies, generosity. There's teachings on how we should pray, how we should handle our finances. There's teachings here about anxiety because, I mean, that's something we still have in 2023, right? Being judgmental, that's there as well. Christ is going to teach us how we can navigate that. Tells us how we should treat the others. Right? All of this, it, it's right here in front of us. So as we, we walk through this message over the next five weeks, we need to remember what Jesus himself says will happen if we choose to ignore his teachings. If we ignore his teachings, chapter 7, verse 26 and 27, again, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. The converse, again, is true. Verses 24 and 25, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded upon the rock. The, the question for us as Christians is, do we actually believe that? Right? This is the question we all need to answer, including myself. Do we believe that God, as the author of life, that he would have greater insight into ethical behavior than the modern world around us. Have you ever heard someone, maybe an atheist has ever come to you and said, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I just believe that he was a good teacher. Right? I think we all have heard that before. And I know very often when we have heard someone say that before, when we've heard them try to diminish and belittle our Jesus, our reaction is, is, is we want to be that superhero. Right? We want to cape up for Jesus and defend him. We, we want to say, no, 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 you don't understand. See, Jesus is the Messiah. We want to say, hey, Jesus, you don't understand. He's divine. He's seated right now, currently, at the right hand of God. He's not just a good teacher that everyone who calls upon his name is going to be saved. But sometimes in my defense of Jesus... I've completely forgotten to neglect that it is true, indeed, he is a good teacher. I put my faith in Jesus with my eternity, with my salvation. I put my faith in him alone. But it's almost a harder question is, do I follow his teachings? Do I live my life in accordance to what he has laid out for me in a way that would please him? Do I do this so that I can build upon the rock? Or am I just happy with the gift of salvation? But I'm going to continue to live however I want. This also bears the question, why does Jesus care how we live? If scripture tells us that his blood covers a multitude of sins... We just came out of the book of Hebrews. We remember that in Hebrews 10, we learned that Jesus' sacrifice is uh, fully sufficient. 
but it is permanent. So why bother? Why, why listen to the teachings of Jesus in sermons like this? Why not just do whatever we please? Why do we have all of these rules? I know for a lot of us, we went through these time periods where, where to us God was, was just a bunch of ethical rules that we had to follow. And these were rules that were written thousands upon thousands of years ago, so we thought to ourselves they have little to no impact on me and my modern world today. I know a whole lot of us at times in our lives we have seen God as the grumpy old police officer in the sky. Right? If you go five miles per hour over the speed limit, boom, ticket. Right? You, you don't quite make that yellow light and it turns red, guess what? Again, ticket. Cross over the, the, the median just slightly, God's there watching, no surprise, another ticket. Right? God becomes just this cosmic killjoy who, who puts these rules in place, and the purpose of them is to make sure that our fun does not happen. We look around all the time, we begin to feel like God is punishing us. And if that is where you are when you read something like the Sermon on the Mount with, with this, this big list of all of these do's and don'ts, it just seems like another reminder for you of this police officer who wants to kill your fun. This police officer who wants to remind you how ignorant you are, who wants to remind you also that your ignorance still is no excuse for not obeying the law. See, but this isn't what these teachings are all about. When Jesus was given this amazing opportunity to speak to these people face to face, he seized it. And he took the time to teach his followers how they should live. Because he did know that they would head back to their hometowns. They would go back to their villages or their cities. And maybe not all of them, but he knew some of them were going to go home and they were going to be changed forever. They weren't just going to go home with secondhand stories of miracles and healings. They were going to go home with a visible change to who they were and how they acted. I can always argue the validity of a story about a second-hand miracle, but I cannot argue the validity of one individual's changed life. Right? If there's someone that I know well, someone who's living for one thing, and then all of a sudden they meet Jesus, and all of a sudden they're living for something completely different, I have to notice that. See, Jesus knew that it's those changed people that were going to make an effective witness for him as he grew his kingdom. I want you to read with me uh, Matthew chapter 5. It's verses 13 through 16. You know these passages well. Again, these are still the words of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses I'm sorry, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is going to teach in this sermon, it's countercultural. It was countercultural in the first century. It's certainly still countercultural today. And I hope this isn't breaking news, but it's my belief.
belief that's going to remain countercultural until he returns. Because the world that we live in is hopelessly broken by sin, and Jesus Christ is the antithesis of sin. So these verses that we just read in chapter 5, these verses are incredibly important for us to understand. See, because it's these verses that explain to us or, or tell us the why. It explains to us why when given the opportunity, why did Jesus focus on all of these moral and all of these ethical teachings in this sermon? It explains to us why so few of the passages in this sermon are meant to disclose the messianic secret. It also shows us what we are to do with the knowledge that Jesus has imparted upon us. You've heard me say this before. Jesus knew that there would be temptation that would come upon well-meaning followers of his, that when they would hear all of these moral and ethical teachings and standards that Jesus set, that logically their response would say, you know what, the world is evil, the world is hopelessly broken, the only way that we can ever hope to survive, the only way that I can ever live a life that is going to remain at the standard that my king has set for me is going to be if I abandon this world and I abandon its people. If I go and I live like an extremist, if I live upon, upon some type of compound or a monastery where I can shut out the entire world, but in the fifth chapter, what we just read is Jesus saying, no. Jesus says, if the world loses you, they are losing the very thing that I have sent to preserve them. Jesus is saying that if, if his followers abandon the world, if they turn off the lights, the people are going to lose the very thing that Jesus left behind to light the way. Light the way to truth. Light the way to life. You see, I don't believe that as Christians we were ever meant to be hidden. We were never meant to be living in the shadows. I believe that if we live a life that to the best of our ability resembles the teachings that Jesus gave on this hillside 2,000 years ago, that if we live that life while simultaneously being brave enough to live that life out in the open, loudly, confidently, dare I even say proudly, that we are going to preserve lives and that we are going to be lights to lost souls. Jesus' mission was most definitely to save lost souls, to make a way. That is why he came to earth, to, to open up the gates of heaven to all who would place their faith in him as their sacrificial lamb. But what we see in the Sermon on the Mount what we see in, in so many of other of Christ's teachings is his teachings don't just always present this simple equation. His teachings very rarely are ever just simply this plus that equals heaven. When we look at his greatest sermon, Jesus wants to teach us ethics. He wants to teach us how we should live, what we should do. And that's what we're going to explore over the next five weeks together. If I can go back to the maybe atheist that would say Jesus was just a good teacher for a moment. It's, it's ironic. This idea that Jesus was just this good guy or this good teacher. Shouldn't that actually be the very place where we can find common ground? If someone comes to me and says, you know, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but he was just a good teacher, couldn't I then open
open up my Bible and say, well, let's look at Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, and let's see what this good teacher that you're referring to, what did he actually teach? Or if he's a good teacher, what did he teach about revenge? If he's a good teacher, who did he pray to? If he's a good teacher, what did he teach about generosity and love? What are his thoughts on lust and divorce? If you say he's a good teacher, why aren't you following his teachings? If he is such a good teacher, why would you not believe that those who don't follow him, that those who don't act upon his teachings are building upon sinking sand? And how will I ever even have an opportunity to have that conversation with that doubter if I'm hidden, if I'm hiding my light? Right, if I am being an undercover Christian who's living in the shadows, if I attend church on Sunday, but I live for the world the rest of the week, you see, it's only when I'm going to be visible. It's only when I make myself approachable while I am striving to live a life that my king would be proud of that we are able to witness God's great plan for salvation. This great plan for salvation through his son, the good teacher. Church, as we walk through this sermon series together, leave here each and every week remembering to shine. Let's pray.